Welcome to the Podium and Panel Podcast. Uh, good afternoon, Your Honors. What's at the end of this case? How did this come about? Are you in the pay of the Microsoft Corporation? Start with the text of the Second Amendment. Your Honor, I, I, I think that that could be viewed as political, but that, that would be... How about the First Amendment? No, Your Honor, I don't, I don't think the First Amendment... You're out again. Still out. I think we're all in Mexico. Welcome to episode 56 of the Podium and Panel Podcast. As we have noted, given the large amount of arguments taking place recently, we will occasionally be taping special episodes, including tonight's. A good example of why that is, we had planned this episode to be focused on three premises liability cases, but earlier this week, two were already decided. We, of course, will not be able to cover every case of interest, but we'll do our best to discuss interesting oral arguments in the courts that we cover. Pat thankfully scouts out cases of potential interest for us, and I'm very grateful for that. Thank so the first you. It's, yeah. it, there's been a lot of listening to do recently. Yeah, and, and what, what happens is Pat usually will listen or at least see what the issues are, and then he'll shoot me a text or email. I'll then uh, listen in, and we'll, we'll try to decide what cases we actually put on the podcast. Uh, the first case today is Becker versus Alexian Brothers Medical Center. It's an interesting premises liability case. It's the one of the three that still remains. And it's a hospital case. And we talk a lot on this uh, show, mainly in the form of nonconvenience and medical malpractice arena when it comes to hospitals. But this one is an interesting uh, case with a, with a large grate. And uh, we'll get into that momentarily. The second case today is Dinnerstein versus Google LLC. Another interesting case involving uh, medical and, and hospitals, the University of Chicago, but this one's focused on standing issues as we've frequently discussed uh, with respect to the Seventh Circuit and their focus these days. And we'll play some of that uh, back and forth with one of the advocates when we get to that case. Uh, let's start with the first case then, Becker versus Alexian Brothers Medical Center. And as Pat posted on his LinkedIn post earlier this week, there's a lot to consider here. The first question is a 21 by seven foot drainage grate. And that's 21 feet by seven feet by seven feet. The seven feet uh, and a driveway that has three inch by seven inch gaps that, that go downward from the parking lot in it and open an obvious condition. Does the extent of lighting at 5.30 a.m. with fog play into the analysis given that the standard for determining whether the condition is open and obvious is objective? Does the presence of a sidewalk adjacent to where the plaintiff fell play into the analysis and where the sidewalk doesn't have a, a wheelchair uh, grading or, or ease of access as, as was uh, questioned at the oral arguments? Does the distraction exception apply given that the plaintiff was preparing to cross an area where cars could be coming, but there doesn't ha actually have uh, seemed to be any traffic because again, it was at 5.30 in the morning as this individual was walking to the hospital? How much consideration, if any, should be given to the fact that this was front of a hospital where individuals entering are more likely to have mobility issues, though the plaintiff here did not. Uh, there's also, uh, as Pat will get into, uh, talk about the shoes that this person wore versus a picture uh, that was take, uh, taken of some other person's shoes with heels. A uh, lot, lot to unpack here. Does it matter that on the other side of the building, a pedestrian approved grate was used that had smaller gaps 
There was no information as to whether there was a difference in the drainage needs uh, that might have necessitated the larger grate in the area where the plaintiff fell, although there was talk about uh, uh, rain uh, and, and, and the uh, downturn from the parking lot. Does it matter that the grate had been in place seemingly without incident for seven years prior to the plaintiff's fall? These are among the many questions the Illinois Appellate Court First District will consider when it decides this case. The oral argument, as always, will be linked in uh, the podcast notes, as are other posts by Pat on open and obvious doctrine in Illinois. Uh, the, the trial court granted the defendant summary judgment, finding that the condition that the plaintiff said she saw one to three feet before she fell was open and obvious. The plaintiff appealed uh, to this court. The trial court ruled on the open and obvious theory as it applied as it applied to all defendants, including architectural design firms and construction firms. But many of the defendants, as noted, were uh, construction entities who claimed they had no duty uh, as they did not design or install the grade itself and did not uh, select the grade that was installed uh, by uh, the hospital. During oral argument and after the main defense argument had been made, the justices took a break because there were four or five advocates uh, on Zoom to decide how many of the other defendants they were going to allow to argue and for how long. They ended up allowing all five to argue for a minute each uh, and they were asked questions as Pat will get into whether those were, were addressed or not is, is open to, uh, well, I think it's clear they, they were not. So with that, all that, Pat, with a lot packed into this uh, somewhat long oral argument, why don't you tell us about the oral argument that took place in this case? Thanks, Dan. Uh, yeah, this case has got a lot going on for a simple slip and fall situation. Um, let's start with the trial judge. Uh, he was mentioned in passing, and, and some context is needed here. So the trial judge is Judge Agron. Judge Agron used to sit in the Chancery Division, and when I started practicing, that's where he was at. He was an excellent judge. And he moved out to one of the suburban districts. So for those not familiar with how Cook County is organized, you have the Daly Center is the municipal, first municipal district is downtown. It's the main courthouse. It's the main civil courthouse. There's the main criminal courthouse at 26th and Cal. And then you have five principal suburban courthouses. And this one is the, the third municipal district up in Rolling Meadows. So the northwest suburbs kind of is, is the area. Uh, and Judge Agron has sat up there, and he hears law division case. You can hear anything out there, uh, not just chancery matters. He had sat in the law division previously, was a trial judge, and he basically has a, an individual calendar out there in Rolling Meadows. Um, he's an excellent judge and um, been out there for probably a decade now. Uh, it's close to where he lives, and that's where he, apparently he's pleased to be. So this is the trial judge. And you – Let's just say that if you can get your case as a defendant to M3 and get uh, Judge Agron to hear your law division case, you do that. And I have had, I have, I helped one of my partners several years ago do just that. Uh, and uh, because it was close to where it was at, and we were able to argue under the local rules that it was appropriate to send it there in the uh, strong suspicion that if we got it there, Judge Agron would be our judge. Uh, so out of the 400 or 500 judges in Cook County, we were able to somehow pick the one we wanted and got it. So <laughs> this could happen. Uh, so a little inside baseball there for those that practice, uh, those that don't know Cook County very well. So as Dan mentioned, you had this circus 
that occurred in the middle of the argument where the justices realized they hadn't allocated the time. They're looking at this Brady bunch of pictures on their Zoom. I can't imagine this happening in in uh, uh, it, were this live, by the way. No. Uh, but on Zoom, this has happened. And they're like, well, we didn't talk about this previously. We're going we're gonna to take a break and we're going to caucus and we're going to come back. So they come back and they say, all right, we'll give you each a minute. Well, that's a lawyer minute. Uh, that's kind of like the that's the opposite of a psychiatrist's uh, hour. It, it's <laughs> you know his hour is only fifty minutes. A lawyer's minute is a bit more, um, and it was. Uh, but let's just say that didn't that was, that extra time didn't necessarily go great because the first question that came is all right. What do you guys has the engineer tell me about uh, why this grate was there and is there a standard out there? And of course they get to the engineering guys like I don't know. Uh, I just know that we it was approved. And, right. and the, let's just say the justices were not pleased with that. And am I wrong, Dan? Was Justice Walker was on this panel, right? He was. Okay. So Justice Walker, as we've observed, maybe not on the show, but certainly Dan and I have talked about, loves defying questions of fact. He's he the does. one who split the baby in the um, uh, uh, total insurance case between Justices Hyman and Pierce a, a couple weeks ago. And right. he found a question of fact that basically made everybody happy, except for the defendant. Um, and so he loves to find questions of fact. That's that's he always that's, there, right? that's always his thing. Isn't, isn't there a question of fact? Of fact this here? is the case. Question of fact, isn't it? Is that's that's <laughs> always his. I'm not. That's and understand. That's not a criticism. No. That is. He's always saying that sounds like a question of fact for me. That doesn't sound like it's appropriate for a motion to dismiss or a motion for summary judgment. You got to have a jury figure that one out. Um, and maybe that that certainly seems like that's where they're headed. One of the things that uh, they they kind of the plaintiff kind of uh, wrapped on uh, Judge Agron for not doing was going through the four factors of the burden uh, of to protect against this, uh, and he didn't. It seems he just said it's a twenty-one by seven grate. How do you not see it? Right. And you said you saw it beforehand, and you still walked on it, and it's been there for seven years. So I really don't understand. And also understand that these five or six defendants, each of them had made a bunch of other arguments besides the open and obvious. But he's like, open and obvious is dispositive of all of you people. I don't have to get the rest of this. I'm deciding this on open and obvious. So what happened during these individual arguments, one of them was like, we dug the trench. How in the world are we liable for the great? We didn't design the great. We didn't place the great. We didn't pick the great. We didn't. We dug the trench under the great. How are we possibly involved in this case? So it will right. be interesting to see with them having made that argument, if they don't get thrown back to the to the to the appellate court or strike that to the trial court if there's a reversal, and they're going to go make their argument and go, I took a ditch. It wasn't my job to put a great. Um, so Dan mentioned the shoes, and there's a picture in the record of someone's shoes that aren't hers and a foot that isn't hers and shoes she wasn't wearing, and right. it's like, why is that there? And she threw um, the shoe. She threw her shoes away, so there's no evidence that she wore flat sandals. And and it, and she testified in her deposition it wouldn't have mattered because if she wore, uh, she has small feet, and so there there was a lot of discussion about that by the appellant. It, it, at the end of the day, it, you know, sometimes you you have these grates where you've got uh, you know downtown with like the subway, and that's a real problem because the the size of those grates are a real problem for ladies wearing high heels in particular. Um, this lady was not wearing high heels, but a three by seven uh, inch uh, great hole. It doesn't matter what you were wearing. 
The 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 problem the ladies have with the subway grate is their heel gets caught in the thing, and it 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 takes off the heel or breaks the heel or takes off the tip of the heel. I've I've been with women where all of those things have happened. (laughs) So it's just like steer clear of the grate. Um, So, but that wasn't this. This was big enough you could see a foot getting in there. Um, Which, but this is a next to a sidewalk, a marked sidewalk. Well, use the sidewalk when you're walking from the parking lot to the hospital. Lots of discussion also about people with mobility problems coming into a hospital. You know, one of the judges, justices was like, well, if you have one of those people that's got one of those canes, that has got the three or four things on the bottom, it could get caught in there. It's like, well, this person didn't have that problem. I mean, that wasn't, that wasn't the issue here. Um, I think they were just criticizing the design overall. Like, this is a crappy design. You shouldn't do this. Uh, but that's really not the inquiry. The inquiry is, did she see it? Uh, would a reasonable person see it? Would a reasonable person have stepped there? Would a would a defendant? What would the defendant need to do to protect against the harm? I don't know. Put a sidewalk. Um, and although although the sidewalk again was, I mean, it, it, I, I don't see. I, I haven't looked up the, the actual schematics, but the sidewalk again didn't have any access things. It had a high curb all along. Um, that this was the most direct route to the doors. There's all kinds of stuff that was going on and. There was questions yeah, about as, the decoration and, and, and that it all blended in. and that it, uh, As Justice Walker pointed out, people will take the shortcut if you give it to them, even if you have a marked thing. You have to be prepared that people are going to not walk where you tell them to walk. His point is well taken. Um, right. But that doesn't mean walk on things that are 21 by 7 and have big holes in them. Uh, so I, I don't think it's going to go very well for the defendants based on how that oral argument went. Um, at least some of them are going to be going back to the trial court. Maybe not all of them. I don't know, but at least some of them are going to be going back. Uh, I also wonder about the statute of limitations for some of these seven years, uh, construction is usually four. Right. right. Um, so, so that didn't seem to be the leading issue. Maybe I, I'm missing something as to why that isn't. I kept did, wondering did, the same thing. Yeah. This, ha- this has been that way for that long. Uh, as I said, construction is four years. So I'm not sure what. I, I can see that being a, a problem for the landowner, for the, right. the hospital themselves. Right. Sure. Continuous but not for right. the construction defendants, not for power construction, not for the ditch digger, not for the engineer, or the architect. I don't see how they're involved. And um, under E&O, if, if it was like a negligent design thing, again, E&O is two years, right? So again, yeah, I don't see I don't see how statute of limitations here seven years is going to help uh, many, you know, many the plaintiff for, against many of these defendants. Yeah, it doesn't see. It wasn't an issue. It didn't get brought up. No. I, I was very. So something's missing here. So that yeah. there's. I'm not sure what's going on there. So with with that case full of all kinds of issues, we'll take our first break, and come back with maybe our last break. I come back with our first break. Um, Dinnerstein versus Google and the University of Chicago hospitals not making my alma mater very proud. We're back for segment two of episode 56 of the Podium and Panel podcast to discuss Dinnerstein versus Google and the University of Chicago Hospitals. The University of Chicago Hospitals shared medical records pursuant to a data use agreement with Google for the purposes of a research project. To my way of thinking, it's rather disturbing, but this is what they did. The Seventh Circuit recently heard argument 
oral argument in the case in which the plaintiff alleged a variety of theories, including breach of contract, breach of confidentiality, tortious interference with contract, unjust enrichment, invasion of seclusion, uh, conversion requiring disgorgement. The district court found standing, but found that the plaintiff failed to, to plead a cause of action upon which relief could be granted. The facts are that two years after the plaintiff received care, and he's not complaining about the care. No nope. care was fine. He's happy with what the doctors did. He's unhappy with what happened afterwards. And pursuant to an agreement that the defendants contended was in compliance with HIPAA and, a, and in accord with the disclosed privacy practices that the uh, plaintiff signed and acknowledged that he signed, the redact, allegedly redacted records were shared by the hospital with Google. The plaintiff relied in his complaint on the risk of future harm of disclosure and a lack of a lack of a benefit of the bargain, contending that he bargained for medical treatment with confidentiality, but only got medical treatment with no confidentiality, and that such treatment is worth less. Not that it's worthless; it's worth less. Too much diminished value. Is that really is that really the case? Is one of the questions that the judges were were asking. Citing to a speech by a U of C data, data informatics officer, and someone's going to, have to tell me what that is, in which he in which this doctor, this uh, officer stated that the free text notes, these are the these are the not the drop down boxes or whatnot, but the comments from the uh, the, the provider. The impression stuff, they're, they're kind of the various things when you're talking to somebody, and if you ever go to the right, doctor, the history and, and asked about do you drink alcohol, do you have sex, whatever those the things are that are not actual treatment. And, and that the the doctor or the, the officer said that it was difficult to de-identify these. The plaintiff alleged that the records had not been redacted in the form required by the statute and the privacy agreement. Whether that is sufficient, a sufficient pleading, because it was kind of a made in a conclusion was the claim of the of the defendants and of at least one of the judges um, is a question to be determined. There was a large dispute between court and the court and counsel for the university regarding whether the damage element of breach of contract which requires actual damages, also could be used to show that there was no concrete injury to support a claim of lack of Article Three standing. At one point, Judge Sykes said, do not jurisdictionalize the elements. So I'm going to play a portion of the argument that kind of has this tete-a-tete and discusses the TransUnion case that Dan's going to talk about um, after I play this section of the argument. breach of contract claim, unless the court has further questions about standing for the breach of medical confidentiality claim. i just briefly say that I think the Supreme Court's decision in TransUnion lays forth a clear rule, no concrete harm, no standing. And that rule should apply here in precisely the same way that it applies in the context of a statutory cause of action. With respect to the two theories of well, before, you, before you leave that subject, Mr. Rhodes, um, so your position is that the TransUnion decision is essentially trans-substantive and applies to all common law claims as well, such as breach of contract, all court claims, um, and that all federal courts that have entertained breach of contract claims uh, without an independent concrete showing of a contract injury over and above the breach uh, has have been unlawful under Article Three up until the moment of the TransUnion decision. That's a pretty 
remarkable position to take. I mean, there is very sweeping language in the transunion decision, but to read it as requiring uh, a showing of harm at a breach of contract case uh, over and above the contract breach would be pretty substantial, would it not? Well, Your Honor, we submit that the, the classic cases in which the plaintiff comes into court alleging a breach of contract with no concrete harm to follow is actually a fairly small, if not non-existent, class of cases other than this one. I mean, in most contracts, the plaintiff seeks damages that stem from the breach of contract itself. They want to be paid for the benefit of their bargain, the amount that they lost from the breach. And in, when the plaintiff receives damages, that makes clear that the plaintiff did, in fact, suffer the concrete harm that was at issue. It's only in a rare case like this one where a plaintiff really doesn't have any plausible showing of actual damages from the breach itself in which this will come into play. Right, but the understanding of contract law has always been that the victim of a breach of contract is entitled to a legal remedy for that breach in court subject to the um, you know, provision of proof of what the compensatory damages are, but it's never been thought of as um, a jurisdictional requirement to uh, plead. Um, an injury beyond reach. Well, Your Honor, I certainly grant that this isn't a topic that has often been discussed in the case law in the past, but I think the Supreme Court's decisions on this topic are clear that they don't draw any distinction between statutory claims and contract claims with respect to the Article Three requirements. So I think you get a flavor of where that's headed. Dan, tell us about, for those that don't remember, the TransUnion case that we discussed on episode 20 of the show. Will do. And, and uh, you know, first first of all, I, I do think that the, that advocate there that said that there's no distinction in, in TransUnion between contractual and statutory, I, I'm not sure that I agree with that because you and I have covered a lot of these uh, standing cases, including at the Supreme Court, the TransUnion case in episode 20. And, and I think that's pretty clear. It's a statutory case where there is no uh, injury rather than the statutory damages and what it takes to actually have damages under those regimes. Um, and as you know, as this panel, they very quickly, Judge Kirsch started right in standing. Uh, they almost never reached the merits in this case. But as you know, I want to start by talking about TransUnion. This is a case that we covered in episode 20. Uh, the Supreme Court decided this case by a 5-4 decision last June. It involved the disclosure of people on the Office of Foreign Asset Control list, and one, uh, the named plaintiff in particular had gone to a CarMax or some other auto place with his family and was told that he, uh, his name was on the uh, specially designated nationals list, and it caused embarrassment and pain. There are many other class members where uh, they may have had names that were similar uh, to uh, the the Office of Foreign Asset Control list, but these are people that are on the list because they're allegedly drug dealers or terrorists or other other nasty types. Yeah, and, and this fellow apparently shared a name with one of those nasty types. Right, right. And you know, it, these lists have been around for uh, 1950. OFAC was created, and it's it an offshoot of another agency that existed from World War One when uh, Germany went into Norway or something like that. And so. Um, so, so OFAC's been around a long time. It really, uh, the focus really got onto those lists back in uh, after 9/11, when when a lot of uh, Saudis were added to the list and and, and a lot of uh, terrorists 
as Pat mentioned. Um, and, and so anyway, the Supreme Court last June in, in TransUnion, they narrow, narrowly held that the plaintiffs who did not show their information was disseminated, did not have standing under these uh, statutory uh, regimes, uh, alphabet soup, as, as Pat calls them correctly. Uh, the court further held that those who merely had a risk of their information uh, might, that might be shared did not suffer an informational injury sufficient to support Article Three standing. And that's where the judges were really focused in this case. That long uh, interchange with, with Judge Sykes was kind of representative of, of the skepticism that this uh, type of uh, injury and this kind of uh, analysis would apply in a, in a regular breach of contract uh, analysis. And so what the court held back in June was only a plaintiff concretely harmed uh, by a defendant's violation of the Fair Credit Reporting Act, in that case, another alphabet soup, has Article Three standing to seek damages against a private defendant in federal court. And so the judgment uh, of the lower court was reversed and mandated 5-4. The majority opinion was written by Justice Kavanaugh, and he was uh, joined by uh, uh, the, the five conservatives. The other conservatives except, except Justice Thomas. Thomas who filed a dissenting opinion, which the, this court asked about. Um, Justice Thomas had a different view of this. And and Thomas was joined and maybe one of the few times, if not the only time I can ever recall, where he was joined by the three liberals, um, Breyer, Sotomayor, and Kagan. Um, uh, and Kagan filed her own dissenting opinion and Justice Breyer's and Sotomayor joined. Um, what what, what uh, the, the, this, court made clear and what the analysis by the Seventh Circuit is, is that standing is evaluated claim by claim. And so they went through each of the many uh, causes of action that Pat had already listed, uh, uh, various invasions of privacy and other, other causes of actions that were claimed. And that standing has to be determined whether there's concrete injury claim by claim by claim. The uh, statute at issue here, as Pat mentioned, this was a, a research a contract that, that a lot of these research hospitals uh, do engage in, where they release what's supposed to be de-anonymized uh, uh, data so that you can't identify people. Uh, uh, as, as was talked about on, uh, and you heard and, and, and Pat introduced, um, it was unclear whether you can adequately de-identify data so that it couldn't be reconstructed. Um, but, but the statute at issue here is HIPAA, uh, and HIPAA doesn't provide for a private cause of action, uh, but we have this claim that's pending here uh, that's tangential to it. Um, we talked about in episode 51 in Davis versus Pace, uh, concessions by advocates at the oral argument. And, and here again, we, we had that uh, taking place in this case. Um, the um, the Seventh Circuit, as we've talked about, uh, and we noted just on the last Sunday's episode, is increasingly focused in these alphabet soup cases, causes of action, BIPA and FCRA and all these other uh, statutes uh, or initialisms as Judge Easterbrook refers to them. And, and so on oral argument, again, I, I, I think that the, the uh, judges, again, they jumped right into this, uh, how, um, uh, how, how is there, there an actual injury to support Article Three standing in this case? And as Pat said, uh, the argument of the advocate was that uh, that because of this potential for privacy violations, and again, there was no there's no evidence that Google uh, uh, used or or tried to rebuild 
or actually harmed uh, the patient in this case, right? He'd, he'd been treated two years before. Uh, he claimed that he would never have gone into this uh, procedure if he had known that this uh, was taking place. Uh, the hospital's advocate actually pointed out though, that when you, when you come into the hospital, you sign and there's something in there, there's a clause that says that your data can be used and de-anonymized, de uh, be used for the- It is a research hospital. Right, it is a research hospital. They do research there. <laughs> um, and, and so I think, I, I think that the, this uh, panel was really struggling with how do you, what, what is the actual concrete injury that your client is, is claiming, right? And, and using the TransUnion case, was there any dissemination? Was there actual uh, forward disclosure? Like the BIPA cases we talked about last week, is there, again, has there been any actual release of the data and, and not just this fear of harm? Uh, the advocate, as, as mentioned, his, his main argument was, look, I didn't get the, my, my client didn't get the benefit of the bargain here because he got the, the service. We love the service. We don't complain about the service at all, but the value of that service is diminished because you went and took my data and you gave it to this big internet giant that can potentially uh, find out more things about my client, including geolocation and other things. Um, and so- Down to what floor of the hospital he was on. Right? Yeah, with geolocation and stuff, you know, which rate, you know, I, I don't know how they got geolocation. Uh, maybe maybe those uh, wristbands they put on you with the little chip nowadays, uh, because I doubt he has his phone on him while he's in surgery, right? You, you know, when I've had surgeries, I put it somewhere else and, and it's not with me, uh, but but we, we just don't know. Um, I, I, and again, I, I thought that that interaction that you played, Pat, I think that's uh, really sums up well I, again, kind of this uh, uh, argument. Uh, uh, the advocate again was saying in breach of contract cases where this, where there's the only injury is this type of statutory. Somehow you loop that in, and that, that uh, again, you you have to go through the process then of of uh, uh, of looking to see uh, w what type of harm was uh, uh, inflicted on the plaintiff, and and I think it's a hard argument and a pretty big hurdle for uh, uh, plaintiff here. It, it, it is. Um, I, I, I will say, let me go back to the very beginning of the argument. And counsel for the appellee, or appellant rather, is all ready to talk about the merits. Yeah. And he's ready to dispose and run right past state. He's like, whoop, I'm going by. And, and Judge Kirsch says, let me stop yeah. you. Uh, I've got I've got a lot of questions about standing, and the next forty five minutes were about standing. Uh, the Google's advocate who went last as the appellee got to talk about the merits a little bit, right? Not but much. he had to spend most of his time uh, talking about standing too. So uh, it'll be very interesting to see how this uh, how this works out I, and how yeah, they view. I agree this. Um, the standing um, issue. Uh, I, I I have a feeling they're going to kick the case, but for a different reason than which judge district judge Paul Meyer kicked the case. Yeah. Um, well, that's, but when it, when the appellant opened, he said, you know, standing, but you know, uh, judge Paul Meyer and all three claims that, that survived uh, found injury in fact. And that's, like you said, that was the last, the, the only sentence that, that, the advocate got out before the, the barrage of, of the next 15 minutes. Standing issues. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, we're going to find out a lot about standing here. I don't know what they're going to do with it, but yeah, it's, uh, you know, they they didn't talk about merits. Yeah. Uh, they may want more information about standing. Who knows? Yeah, um, and I, th- I think the concession that I mentioned, I, I should uh, clarify for those that aren't going to listen to your argument, it had to do. Uh, uh, and who needs to listen to the oral argument? They've listened to us. I know, I know. They don't. They don't have to. <laughs> uh, but it, it was it was this uh, risk of future harm theory that. Um, and, and, and during, during uh, uh, the appellant's original argument, he seemed to concede that. And then on rebuttal, because appellee said, well, I think the opposing counsel, my friend, conceded this issue. And then on rebuttal. And Judge Sykes agreed. Yeah. And then, but th- then Judge Sykes asked, you concede this? And he said, I'm not conceding anything today. It was just really an example. It's like, okay, well, I, I don't know. I'm going to read the, read the I, I don't transcript. Think he conceded. I don't think he conceded it. I really don't. I, I don't either. I, I think he said. I, I don't think he conceded. I don't think he came within a country mile of conceding no, in his opening remarks. But Judge Sykes will uh, certainly had a different view. He did um, of of what happened. Uh, and and who's appellate counsel to say to credit to disagree with the judge about what the judge just said? The other guy conceded. I mean, you're going to say no, Judge. He didn't concede that. No, no, no. Yeah, he conceded it, Judge. I agree. Right. <laughs> so. With that, we'll take our next break and come back with predictions sure to go uh, wrong uh, and uh, some PLA grants. Hey, Podium and Podcast listeners. If you want to get in touch with the show, you can drop us a line at podiumandpanelpodcast at gmail.com. Please let us know about cases you're interested in or guests you'd like us to interview. You can also follow Dan and I on LinkedIn, as well as the Podium and Panel podcast page on LinkedIn. We look forward to hearing from you. We're back for episode 56, segment three. And with predictions sure to go wrong, uh, we're one and two so far this week, but we'll cover those Sunday as we always do. Uh, Pat, let's make a few predictions sure to go wrong today. What do you think on the first case, uh, Becker? Reversed, reversed at least for some of the defendants, right? I think at least so. for some of the. Well, let's say this: reversed on the ground on which the trial court granted summary judgment. Right. I think I, right. they may grant on other grounds on issues that were only touched on tangentially or not reached for other defendants. But anybody that won on oral on open and obvious, which they all did, yep. they're going to have to find a new way to win because they're going to yep. win in front of that court on that theory. Right. And they're going to have to probably brief it because, again, uh, the judge in the trial court, as you mentioned, uh, refused to have any any. Well, he got briefed. Recovery. He just didn't. Yeah. Well, no, I thought they hadn't briefed it. I thought that the the one the appellant said they they kind of started briefing it, and then he's like, "No, this is it. Like, we're gonna because if we can decide on this issue, then the others go away." But 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 it, but I will say the appellant brief or something. But the appellate court could still affirm on those bases if they're in the record, which right. they are. Right. So the they 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 could they could affirm on that on those bases if there's a develop well well enough developed record. So yeah. We'll we, see. We'll see. It'll be interesting. But they're not winning on open and obvious, which is the question. So interesting. No. Uh, I I don't Judge, Judge Sykes was all over the place. Yeah, Judge Kirsch was a bit more focused. He had real questions that seemed to say you don't have standing here. Judge Sykes, what I think she may come down that there's no standing, 
but it's not going to be on the basis that counsel oh for the hospitals asked for. Yeah. I don't think she's going to go quite, it doesn't seem she's prepared to go quite that far. No. With saying, you didn't plead an injury. I think she's going to say, these people or this person hasn't pled an actual injury. Not that you can't plead an injury in this circumstance. I think so. So too. I think it's going to be affirmed, but on the basis of standing, not on the basis of the merits. I think they're going to disagree with Judge Paul Meyer. I think so. I think you're right. I agree. So you want to talk right. about the CLEs coming up and then the next show? So Sunday, we're going to talk about three oral arguments. But before we're in front of the Illinois Supreme Court last week, but before we do that, we got to look to what's coming from the Illinois Supreme Court. They took three PLAs of and that's petitions for leave to appeal of cases that we talked about on this show. A uh, Walworth versus Moose Sigma. This is the case involving the Ryan family and yeah. uh, uh, and investments and 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 uh, um, disclosure of information, and it's it's very interesting. And, and Robinson, and go ahead. Just as an aside, Ryan and his wife just gave the largest gift in Northwestern's history. So this case seems like it's maybe moot in terms of value, but it's still it's still the. They must have broken their own record again because they just they they, somebody must they just keep breaking their own record for giving money to that school. Yeah, uh, quite amazing. Um, then Robinson versus Village of Sauk Village. This is the uh, the case regard where we had uh, Kevin O'Connor who represented Robinson uh, on the show. This is the case, this is the police chase case where his client was run over as they were chasing this guy all over God's green earth and into Indiana and back in Illinois and all through right. the south suburbs. And then um, then constrained his car and then he took off again and yeah. yeah. So crazy. Questions whether he was constrained under the meaning of the Tort Immunity Act, our favorite thing, tort immunity. Uh, and then Midwest versus Sandburg Phoenix, which is a, a case involving legal malpractice and whether there's going to be, I'm going to expose my bias here, but that's nothing anyone doesn't already know, that you're going to have two classes of lawyers in Illinois, plaintiffs, lawyers, and defense lawyers. You, can, you can't collect punitive damages that, are, that you didn't get against plaintiffs' lawyers, but you can on punitive damages are awarded against you in, uh, against the defense lawyer who allegedly screwed up. Um, so three very interesting cases that will probably not get argued until next spring. Uh, but PLA was granted this past week on Wednesday. And we'll cover them when they otherwise known as yesterday. Um, and then on Friday, as on Sunday, we're going to talk about Schultz versus St. Clair, another tort immunity case dealing with, uh, um, dispatching and whether a dispatcher has a duty to actually dispatch. As we know, under tort immunity, usually government employees don't have a duty to do the thing that's in their duty. And then we're going to talk about Igerthausen versus Advocate, which is a case about juries, uh, a, a jury bias and uh, a whole very interesting issue also on a uh, issue about uh, taking judicial notice on appeal. And then we're going to talk about a case Armstead versus National Freight that deals with a judicial estoppel issue uh, between a a workers' compensation claim in Pennsylvania and a tort claim filed in Illinois. And since the oral argument, there has been some post-argument briefing we're going to talk about because it turns out the issue that was argued and briefed may not be the issue that gets decided. 
So uh, on that cliffhanger, we will talk to everybody on Sunday for episode... I'm Dan Cotter, and on behalf of my co-host, Pat Eckler, we thank you for listening and look forward to having you join us again. Please follow us on LinkedIn and read our columns in the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin. Please join us again at the podium and panel. Each episode on the podium and panel podcast We will cover several oral arguments and decisions in civil matters at the Illinois Appellate Court and Illinois Supreme Court, with the occasional coverage of SCOTUS and other appellate courts. The purpose of the podcast is to inform of developments that may affect business and are not to be considered legal advice. They do not create a lawyer-client relationship. Information on previous case results do not guarantee a similar future result. The opinions are their own and do not reflect those of the firms for which they work or their clients.